My name is Andrew McGowan. I'm a musician and athlete who geeks out on fashion, art, and great food. I spent time working with elite performers, repairing instruments for major symphony musicians, training for marathons, and designing wardrobes from everyone from freshman college students to big city lawyers. Trequartista is the Italian word for playmaker and is used to describe a particularly creative role on the soccer pitch, typically behind the central striker. And as the musical Trequartista, I aim to kickstart conversations about topics and areas that I think are underrated, underdiscussed, or particularly important to a sustainable high-octane life. This is the Musical Trek Artista, the podcast. I hate the robot sound. Awesome, awesome. Lance the Duke, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. What's the show called? Um, it's currently called the Musical Trek Artista. Um, I'm on like episode 28, and then wow. this particular series is going to be. I've taken a long break, but um, this particular series is cataloging all of these interviews with famous euphonium players and trying to get inside the brain of what they like about the instrument to create a living resource for composers. It's a great idea. Thanks. Awesome. So I feel uh, like I've known you since you were 13. <laughs> um, for everybody that's just listening, uh, Lance and I were just talking about how um, even though we've like had almost no interaction whatsoever, we met when I was about 13 when he was on tour with Boston Brass. So, <laughs> Home, Illinois, man. Yeah, tiny town, middle of nowhere. That's uh, It's yeah. like the chamber musician's bread and butter, right? It, I feel like... Oh, yeah. I feel like weirdly blessed having come from that place because like having a big enough university to throw money at the arts. Like I saw a Boston Brass and Imani Wentz before I was in high school. Yeah. Which yeah. is like, who gets the chance for that if you're not in a big city? It's pretty cool. And and there's a, a great organization called Allied Concert Series that that hosts hundreds of concerts every year, maybe thousand, I don't know, uh, throughout the Midwest. And they book you for bread is pretty good but the um they just book you for a bajillion shows in a row so you end up getting to try out um the program a ton the band gets really good by the end of it or they get really sick of each other or both <laughs> and um but you get to see you know like rugby north dakota like places you never <laughs> knew existed did you ever make it to enough missouri that might be my uh, favorite town in the midwest just based on names the name yeah <laughs> not, not, doesn't ring a bell now you know not too far from where i grew up is climax michigan there's an intercourse pennsylvania there's, <laughs> you know there's some good there's a hell michigan too yeah that's awesome there's a race there where it used to be when i was a kid there was like a 10k or something and it was like the race through hell oh that's awesome <laughs> but that's not why we're here no it's not <laughs> no it's not um Actually, uh, Lance, do you mind, since you're talking about Michigan already, do you mind like telling us a little bit about the early portion of your career? I think a lot of people sure. know the later part, like the Air Force Band, yeah. Brass Band, Battle Creek part. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I grew up in a little town called Niles, Michigan, which is about uh, less than 10 miles to the Indiana border and about 70 miles to Chicago. So um, both of my grandfathers were musicians. And so music was a normal part of a of somebody it, it was a normal thing for people in my family to do um and so i uh you know i mean i've told the story a bunch of times on the junkies it was um 
I'll kind of give you the broad strokes. Um, a little bit of a tumultuous childhood, but uh, whenever I was practicing, that was sacred time. So I practiced a lot. And as a little kid practice a lot, they get good. Um, I was a trumpet player <clears throat> at the time, started on trumpet. And then um, had a hard time playing high notes. My face would turn purple and I would nearly black out. And uh, finally in high school, my band director um, convinced me to switch to the euphonium and it was duck to water. I mean, it was like almost instantaneous because I had just, I had established a, a decent level of uh, uh, facility on the trumpet. And so then the fingers were all the same. The ear was fine. And then once I got a mouthpiece, that was a better fit for my uh, pile. Then we were off to the races. And then fortunately enough, my band director had, was a former student of um, Leonard Falcone oh, from Michigan awesome. State University. And so, um, you know, he, he was quite a good funny player um, still. I mean, he, he played, in fact, he might, I think he's still playing in community bands. Um, we've stayed in touch over the years. I mean, he and the other band director at the school really, uh, as so many people have uh, experienced, they, my music educators are the, the guys who've gotten, they were guys in my case, uh, who uh, really kept my, kept me on a path and helped me find an opportunity out of the situation I was in by, by the fact of my own effort. You know, it was like, I, I knew this was a thing that was within my control uh, and that I could um, achieve my goals by working hard. And so um, I asked my band director for um, lessons and he said he, he wasn't teaching lessons at the time. So he was like, come here. So I go into the band office and he took the, the Leonard Falcone and his baritone album, that first uh, album. And he goes over to another thing and he had all the music all the sheet music for all the tunes that were on that record and he was like here you go and so <laughs> i just went and That's i awesome. memorized that record and the uh, first tune was from the shores of the mighty pacific by herbert l clark and i uh, i think that was the first tune on the first side if not it was definitely a standout tune on that record memorized that i memorized all of it i mean i just knew i knew all of it um and uh <clears throat> then i i wanted to go to Michigan state. Uh, I, I needed to stay in, in state. And so I auditioned at Michigan and Michigan state. Now I'll, I'll, I'll save the, you know, there's a rivalry there, but let's yeah. just say I had a less than a positive experience at the university of Michigan. I have now a ton of great friends there. And of course, Dave Zirkel's teaching the two of you studio yeah. and he's a good buddy. And so I'm not going to do the, I'm not going to do the thing, but let's just say it was, uh, night and day in terms of the way I was treated and just the level of respect for some kids showing up and playing and Michigan state was just like super nice to me. And, and, uh, but unfortunately Dr. Falcone died just as I was graduating from high school. So I never had the opportunity oh to meet him. Um, but I go to, I'm in my lessons, Phil Cinder is still teaching there. He was a young yeah. guy then we were both young guys then. Um, uh, I think he's still older than me. I think he, um, at one point in one of my lessons, he goes early on first couple of semesters, he's like, what, what's talk to me about vibrato. And I was like, I don't know. And he's like, well, why do you use the vibrato that you use? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, he goes, um, well, where did you get it? And I, so I started talking about this 
record. He goes, well, I, my band director had this record. And Cinder goes over to his thing. And he said, was it this record? And I go, yeah, <laughs> that's that record. In fact, I wore the thing out. My band director had to get another one because I, <laughs> I just, I played it so many times. But <laughs> just the fact that there was a record, you know, like a, an album, LP, that had this yeah. instrument that I was into. Um, but he goes, oh, okay, now I know. All right, fine. So he knew where where it was starting from. And he sort of just gently nudged me into, um, you know, a, a more uh, contemporary approach to vibrato. Yeah. Uh, so this is making me think of something. How important do you think it is that, like, do you think it's more important for a student to have good recordings of their instrument early than a teacher really early? Because something that I found, I, I had a, uh, the Brian Meixner Genesis album before oh, yeah. I had my first euphonium. Like, I found out I was playing euphonium and he said, here, son, you need this. He's from your hometown. It was nuts. And so, like, I had this, like, North Texas Wilson euphonium sound in my head before I right. ever had a horn. Right, right, right. Is it more important? It is as important. I mean, we didn't, I didn't come from a family where we had the means for me to take lessons. So mm -hmm. I, I, my first lessons were at Michigan State. And so what I would say is, by whatever means necessary for a student to get uh, a, an aural image of what an ideal sound on the instrument is, mm -hmm. is vital so that you know what your, you know, what the template is, you know, here's what the sound is. And I sound like this. So we got to get it to line up so that it sounds, yeah. it sounds within the parameters of, of, um, you know, accepted uh, tone color approach yeah. style, stuff like that. It's funny, you know, to, with, with euphonium, we get into, you know, you were you cited a very specific um, style of euphonium playing, and we I would say we're um, we're getting in the weeds now. I, I would say that uh, there, in my experience, I have seen great reluctance among my colleagues, and I mean above, at below students to pros sure. to accept a wider range of of good tone quality i've it's, noticed that too yeah so I, color so I, is a thing that horn players trumpet players trombone players think about all the time tuba players yeah. even yeah but euphonium is kind of no no if it's not the round and brown we're not doing it right yeah i mean this is uh jumping ahead to a question i have for later do you think the current conservatory model encourages euphonium students to experiment enough because my opinion is kind of that it doesn't. I'm I play in the contemporary improvised music ensemble here at Illinois, and like, it has I have had to do things I never imagined I would have to do on the horn in order to just fit inside the texture of that ensemble. Mm -hmm. And and we don't have any sheet music. <laughs> yeah, of course. Well, I mean the the short answer to your question is unsatisfactory, but it, the answer is it depends. It depends mm -hmm. on who's there and how open they are to um, other, you know, it's like yeah. if, if you have someone who believes that there's one right way to do it and it's either the Brian Bowman sound or the Stephen Mead sound or the, you know, I don't know you pick, I mean, those seem yeah. to be kind of the two main schools that I'm, that I'm aware of now. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of people start, I mean, maybe European this is just sound in the, Maybe yeah. this is just me being a younger cat, but like, there's a lot of people trying to sound like Demandre. Yeah, <laughs> well, of course. Why well, wouldn't they want to? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. 
and 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 actually there's a guy who isn't afraid to um to he's got big ears you know what i mean like so he's <laughs> if it calls for a little edge then he's going to yeah. give you the edge and unapologetically oh, and so yeah. i'm really grateful that he is i'm glad to hear that because you know i'm an old guy now and so it's like i'm not really paying attention maybe maybe i should be paying more attention but um uh i just i'm really heartened that i mean i just think demandre's doing so much good for the instrument oh, he's leading gosh, in yeah. a really in a really interesting way um Definitely. I've known him since he was an undergrad. Whoa. Uh, it was pretty funny. He was, um, I judged a thing at Indiana University of Pennsylvania. There was a quartet competition, the Colonial Tuba Quartet, Gary Bird and uh, Marion Craig and Greg Fitz and Blank and the fourth. Um, <clears throat> well, actually, I'm not sure Marianne was in that group. She played with that group from time to time. Anyway. There was this competition. It was a quartet competition, and um, Soda Voce was at it, and they oh, awesome. were all at Wisconsin together. And they came, and they of course cleaned up. You oh, know, they, they just were so good. Um, and but the one of the standout things that I remember was going to lunch, and then coming back from lunch and hearing uh, "Sweet Child of Mine" for, for euphonium and tuba duo like walking through the air and i'm like what is happening where is that coming am i am i having a stroke what, what's going on and i find these guys and they're just out in the courtyard awesome. it was kind of hilarious um i do think that uh jazzers folks who play jazz uh with the euphonium or valve brass mm -hmm. instruments in our range they of course i think uh, I don't know, of course, but they tend to play with a wider variety of, of uh, you have to color. I well, I think so. I mean, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, I think about uh, Sergio Carolino is somebody I know pretty well, and like, I mean, you want to talk about somebody who's got like a variety of tuba colors, like yeah. holy cats. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's the I don't know, just the homogeneity. Like, fine if you want, fine if you want to establish that this is. <clears throat> These are, okay, here's all the rules. And now everybody go break them in interesting ways that make yeah. artistic sense. So fine that you should have that foundation, but then you should run for run. You know, you should yeah. be able to like, <clears throat> you should be able to um, experiment. I remember it was really interesting. One of the first players that really forced me into thinking about that was uh, Matt Murchison got a degree with me at Carnegie Mellon a while back. Oh, yeah. And I remember he was playing something. I don't remember what it was. And I remember just sort of sitting there listening to him and sort of scratching my head because there was this sort of uh, these two minds and I was of two minds, which was this is not the norm in terms of euphonium, um, but it's right. And mm -hmm. it's like really good. And, and I remember having a debate with him or a, just a conversation with him about, you know what? why are we doing it? Like what is it? Cause at some point then it just becomes for us. Yeah. You know, it's like, if you don't sound like this particular studio, then you're not going to get into the military band where everybody that's currently in there is from that same studio. And so yeah. then it, it just, it just propels this thing, which is fine. Yeah. And I understand you need to blend and, you know, I, I get all that, but what are we losing along the way? And are, are we, is it just so insular that we're not 
um, open to anybody having different ideas about what uh, an acceptable sound is. And folks like Matt, that you, who you mentioned, and Demandre for sure. And then Dados, I think. I think Fernando Dados, I think, is another example. I was fortunate enough to have him as a student as well. And just, just to hear the development of he, I mean, what did I do? You know, Dados is fully baked. He showed up ready to rock and roll. And hopefully I kind of helped guide and steer. Uh, it's a really different uh, experience teaching guys like that. Oh, totally. <laughs> and because uh, I don't mean, I don't mean males. I mean, yeah, folks, folks like, like that. Because I've had incredibly advanced uh, students where it's a more about everybody knows all the fingerings to all the notes at that yeah. point, you know? And so then it's about who are you, what music means something to you? What do you want to play? What do you want to say with your instrument? Yeah. Um, what repertoire is interesting to you? What, what mark do you want to leave on the world? And so with somebody like Dados, you know, it's like, yeah, as yeah. a writer, as a player, as a, a teacher, as a person, you know, he's just, you know, I, I remember playing, going to his, his last, well, he was widely recognized as the best musician in the school. It was just like he was, in fact, awesome. multiple, multiple other, multiple of my colleagues would come up to me. You know that he's like way above. You know, it's like he was just just to say nothing about the institution. It's more to say about Fernando's abilities. Oh yeah. And so he goes to play this tune that he had written earlier in that year, and he's playing euphonium with his right hand and piano with his left hand. He's accompanying himself. And I'm like, okay, you know, but he, he took his, he took the music that he was aware of and grew up with and knew from Brazilian music history, popular music and other, and has made the euphonium, it's his vehicle for expressing that idea, which I think is exactly right. Yeah. It's a, you know, when we were in Boston, when I was in Boston Brass, one of the things we used to say, Jeff Connor used to say this in master classes all the time, where, because um, we were careful to try and create all of our own arrangements. We didn't buy any stock arrangements. We didn't, we, it was, we were a cover band. We, we weren't playing original works, but yeah. uh, we had all unique, all arrangements that were unique to us. They still do. And yeah. um, the, the quote was, you know, that we, that we wanted to encourage people to be producers of music not merely consumers of music and i think yeah. we fall into that trap where it's like here's the accepted repertoire go learn all the repertoire and then good luck yeah instead of well and, and that's one of the things i've always loved about boston's show it's like they'll come out and play a bach cantata and then they're like eh, we're gonna play caravan <laughs> right, right 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 well yeah i mean you know and there's art to that to figuring out the programming and to, to what story are you telling yeah um, you know, how do you, I, I'm really, uh, that's one of my favorite things to do is program shows because mm -hmm. you're taking an audience on a, on a journey and yeah. what do you want them? How do you want them to feel now? Do you bring them up? Do you take them down? Do you, is it funny? Is it beautiful? Is it yeah. <clears throat> shocking? Is it loud? Is it, you know, what is it? I ran into that uh, problem this fall. I programmed, uh, Jakob Tervelui's piece, Grab It for tenor saxophone on my recital. And like, I had nothing to follow it with. <laughs> Oh. But I could, but I, the way the recital worked is I had to put it after intermission. And so I wanted to have enough space, not only for me to rest, because the piece is insane, but like, uh, to give the audience a place to decompress. So I followed it with John Cage's 433. 
There you go. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I mean, I was going to say something similar, but I wasn't going to say something that, that literal. But yeah, I mean, if the, if they need to breathe, then you just let them sit yeah. in the dark a little while. Yeah. <clears throat> or you could throw, you know, there's like a hundred ways to get out of that uh, artistic corner that you painted yourself into. Mm-hmm. And that's what gets fun. You know, well, what yeah. if I have someone out and someone, so if, what if as soon as that's done, someone comes out and does a spoken word thing, yeah. or there's a, a video. Or someone comes out and dances to no music or, you know, like yeah. a way to get a chop break, but to take an audience in a different direction yeah. um, is a really interesting process, I think. Yeah, I wish more people. I don't know where recitals. we started, but that's interesting. Yeah, I wish more people thought about recitals that way, because oh. uh, so many yeah. people I know is just like, well, I need to do this standard piece and this standard piece and this standard piece. And to, to go back to your comment about um, like how awesome it was to have Fernando playing the music that he loved on his instrument. Not, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, I wasn't his teacher. I don't know if he cared about the standard rep or not. There's so many students I meet where they, they tell me like, Andrew, I don't know how you learned how to play fast because like, I, I can't play fast and I hate the rep that teaches us how to play fast. I'm like, then find something that you love know, that's right. fast. <laughs> like right. I have a friend who's super yeah. into Latin jazz and I was like, <laughs> you don't need to find it. Like, this is the easiest thing in the world. You just have to find a chart you like. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. And I think, I mean, some of this is, in, as a, is at an in- institutional level where there are, um, uh, I don't know of any particular instances, so I'm not throwing anybody under the bus. Fortunately, at my institution, my students can play whatever I want, whatever they, whatever makes sense for them to play. Mm-hmm. So um, there's not this must have four different periods represented, must have an original major work for your blah, 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 blah. Like who's that? What's that for? You know, so somebody can check off a box that says yeah. yes, and then our accreditation is blah, 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 blah. But it doesn't, I don't, I'm not sure what good you're doing the student so if you allow the student to program works like you're talking about or i had a student last year uh do her third year recital and she's doing another one this year and she called it demarginalized and she played all music by marginalized composers and she had uh one of the pieces had um animation that was created uh by a student from the school of art that accompanied uh, a couple of movements of a Barbara York thing. And then she had a couple of dancers on a thing. And then oh, cool. she had all these resources that people could look at. Um, if you wanted to find out more about you know, the causes that she was passionate about. I mean, that's, uh, what's the downside yeah. to letting her that's do like that? That's like real art. <laughs> it's real. Exactly. Yeah, she knows. Oh, okay. Yeah. <clears throat> and she played some euphonium repertoire and some borrowed repertoire, uh, but it yeah. all made it, it all, you know, it's like when someone comes to audition for me, I want to hear three things. I want to hear something pretty, something technical, and then something that is a surprise, like that you wouldn't expect to hear. Um, I mean, I vet for that. Yeah. Like I, I ask people to bring, you know, could be could be your favorite TV show theme or a, 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 some video game theme, or I don't care what. Just play me something that is important to you in some way. Yeah. Because we're we just we're too good at just playing for each other and this faster, higher, louder. Um, you know, it's like yeah. an arms race from repertoire sometimes. Like, so this okay. actually gets into some of the heavy hitter questions that I have for this interview. Um, what do you love about the euphonium? Well, the first word that came to mind is the flexibility of it. I mean, I just think that um, you know there are certain instruments that lend itself well to 
the Bobo line, Pastor and Heller, Danny Boy, right? And so, um, uh, and ours happens to be one where it's very, uh, you know, saxophone is not a good example of that, tenor sax or any of the saxophones. Yeah. You know, I, I, I like the sound of saxophone. I know it's yeah. a, 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 sometimes it's maligned, but um, <clears throat> I just think that it lends itself well to beautiful melodies and facile playing. And so then um, the world's your oyster. Because then, you know, if you want to go look at Brazilian music or choro or foro, then fine. You got both of those there. If you want to look at tango, same deal. You want to look at, um, I don't know, the music of the oud or uh, Celtic music or Appalachian music. You have these beautiful airs and then jigs and reels in the case of Irish music or Appalachia. And we can pull both of those things off. And so um, I just like, I like that a lot. I also like that um, it's weird. I mean, that's yeah. just me personally. Um, and that I also like that um, there's, you know, I was just talking about how we're so insular, but I like the fact that um, no one knows what it is. So therefore yeah. it kind of doesn't, you know, it is, it is whatever we tell them. And that's what I guess frustrates me is it's like, people don't know what it is but then somehow there was a secret meeting where all the euphonium players got together and said all right we're all going to play the exact same stuff like yeah you nitwits there's like a million of us we yeah. can each go in a million different directions and really change the conversation about what's the purpose of the instrument what does it and actually i think you know there's uh, the band brave root and there's um there's a bunch of bands that you'll find there's some euphonium or baritone yeah. or bass trumpet or flugabone that's happening in it i mean balkan uh mm -hmm. it's the same deal like yeah i mean it made it into it made it into yenicek's orchestral work so it's definitely in vogue in the balkans i mean the symphony exactly. calls for two euphoniums that's nuts yeah especially for yeah, orchestral yeah. music like what yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 i got to it's fun i've i've gotten to play that twice once for the euphonium part oh, and once awesome. for the bass trumpet part uh, so and, fun. Uh, yeah, it was. I mean, really cool. Like the <laughs> the only times I've ever played with uh, orchestras, oh, ever, ever. Mm -hmm. I mean, from college up. Yeah. Uh, Philadelphia Orchestra, Pittsburgh Symphony. I'm like, okay, that's pretty good. Yeah, it's it's a great <laughs> track record. Right. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So yeah, uh, I Mike job. The, I'm out. The, yeah. the first time I ever saw Chicago Symphony, they programmed the Yenicek Symphonietta, and I mm -hmm. had no idea what it was, and I was like, Ugh, I don't know what this is on the program. I wanted to see like Beethoven or something, mm -hmm. and then two euphoniums walk out on stage, and I go, No, nah, I'm here for this. What? This is this is pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, it's fun. I, you know, uh, I don't know if that answers your question. But. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, actually, it made me think of something else. I was having a in this idea of like we had the the euphonium meeting where all of us decided like yeah. we're just gonna play pantomime. Um, right. <laughs> and it, well, and you know, it's funny because like uh, pantomime has kind of become like it's either like the biggest meme in the world or it's the Glenn Gary leads for young euphonium mm -hmm. players. And there's like nowhere in between. And I think that's so mm -hmm. silly, but I wonder how much of this is a, the nature of like the euphonium just being a pretty young instrument in the grand mm -hmm. scheme of things. And I think there's a tendency for a lot of collegiate euphonium players, especially in the States to get kind of cynical where it's like, okay, I go to the tuba conference and I'm going to hear the Bocalari and pantomime about a million times and then I'm going to go home. Why am I still doing this? Mm -hmm. And 
in the grand scheme of things, like we're just a really young instrument. We have the time to be in, we're in on the ground floor. Like we can make this whatever we want it to be. (laughs) Right. Well, and Falcone, Brian Pullman, Stephen Mead. Yeah. uh, Toro Miura, uh, Marianne Craig. They did us a, uh, and even currently, DeMondre, Adam Fry. Oh my gosh, yeah. They're they're creating a body of work and a, a body of scholarship particularly yeah. in terms of you know what brian has done uh certainly in the u.s um to establish the uh the depth of yeah. the euphonium but we've done a terrible job of describing the width of yes. euphonium, and so it's going to take oh in my opinion a whole bunch more people like demandre and dados and murchison among others Callier uh, in in France, France, Belgium, France. I don't know him. I just Europe. know that he. Yeah, <laughs> he's just everything I've ever heard of. His like, oh, there's an artist. Yeah. That guy is really cool, Anthony. Yeah, my favorite. Yeah, my favorite euphonium player. I'm sending people to right now is Thomas Rudy. I think he has. Rudy's like, awesome. He's he is so like good. he's like a perfect musician and has the most incredible euphonium sound I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah, and he's a super nice guy and a yeah. good teacher, and you know he's creating new works, and you know, so we need that's what we need more of. And then you you know you just like you look at um, the we need some people to hit at the level that Rich Madison hit. You know, you yes. got Joe Dollar who could play circles around folks jazz wise, and Ryan McGeorge who's done some really interesting stuff with that, that funk record that he did a while back, mm-hmm. and. You know, it's just hard because you got to. Everybody's got to just do that on their own. You know, it's like yeah. it's, we're counting on uh, people doing that. Do you um, think there's a hesitancy to record albums uh, for a lot of folks? Because, like, I think it's so funny. People look at like Sergio's output and think it's downright crazy, but I don't think it's that crazy. I just think he plays with a lot of groups. Yeah, I think so too. And it, it seems to be. I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm making this up as we go here, but I get. It feels like that happens more in Europe. When we had Benta Illevold on the on the podcast, she was involved with I don't know a half a dozen different projects, and this one yeah. was you know Euphonium and, and Marimba, and this one was Euphonium. Uh, it was a brass quartet, and this one was yeah. a solo thing, and this one. And I and when we when we've interviewed uh, uh, Thomas Gonch, you know, you go look at Gonch's website, and Monozel, of course, is where he's probably most widely known. Then you go look at the other number of groups that he's involved with, and it's yeah. like mind-boggling. So if each of those groups is only putting out an album every three years, but you're in six groups, then your your output's going to be pretty crazy. I think we. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting question. I, I don't know why we. I, I don't know why I don't see more. Maybe I'm not looking for it. Maybe it exists. So there's that. But why not an EP? Like, why not yeah. release a single with the euphonium, just playing some cool thing that you're passionate about and just yeah. put it out in the world. Like the notion that it has to be an out. We have this perfectionist thing where, you know, that, what is it? The, uh, perfection is the enemy of Don. I can't remember. Right? There's a quote, you know, like yeah. we're so concerned about, oh, people are going to think yeah. I have a bad time, bad intonation, blah, blah, blah. So I, I'm just not going to do anything. I, I, I yeah. just have to wait till it's perfect to put it out in the world. I've had this d- debates with colleagues where I'm like, yeah, I'm cool. Just like record me 24 seven and put it out and I don't care. And they're like, oh, no, 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 no. It has to be curated. It has to be perfect. It has to because you're establishing it. And I, I, I guess I understand that. And it depends on what your day job is as a musician. But for me, I'm, I'm assuming that if you are into it and you stay in it, 
then you want the warts and all like the, yeah. at this point you want to see what did the, the here's this thing but what 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 it, what took place to get there yeah it can't be and garbage but the ah, I, uh, I was at a summer festival that brendan jones was teaching at uh two years ago and one of the things i came away with from the conference is even when uh he's making like the most caricaturish, awful euphonium sound. It sounds incredible. <laughs> like when he's, even when he's doing it on purpose, <laughs> it's nuts. And th that's the thing I think we lose is this idea of like, wow, even when they sound bad, it's incredible. <laughs> yeah. The only way you is get there, there is like, is there a meaning? Yeah. And that's the acceptance of like this, the like warts and all kind of mentality. And well, and is Art and Fear a book you've read? Oh yeah, I, I love that. Yeah, it, it reminds me of the <laughs> the um, project they did with that, or the study they did with that ceramics class, where they had the mm -hmm. kids just like half the class was graded on the weight of the amount of ceramics right. they made over the year, and then and then yeah. everybody else was like, how high quality is the pot? And then like all but one of the award winning pots at the end of the year from were from the quantity section. That's yeah. I mean, that's how it works. Yeah. <laughs> Listen to the first 10 Brass Junkies episodes. They're terrible. Listen to the first 10 of anything of anybody, and they're yeah. terrible. Well, maybe not 10, maybe 8, maybe 12, yeah. maybe 20, but you've got to get the terrible ones out. Yeah. And so, because well, you get better at recording, okay, then the, the mic was in the wrong place, but you just put it out. You don't go backwards. Yeah. You just make put it into the next one. Yeah. Well, and it's funny that you say it's terrible because. I remember right after Ryan Anthony passed away, y'all um, sent a reminder out to listen to episode one, and I went and did that. And one of the things I found was the I don't think the quality of the podcast changes that much. And what I mean by that is I think from episode one, it's incredibly heartfelt, and that's what makes it mm -hmm. endearing and makes it a high-quality podcast, even if you've got to figure out where to put the mics and stuff. Because, mm -hmm. like, if the interview's good, people will show up for it, even if, like yeah. – the tech of it can improve some, but like yeah. improving the tech is easy. That is, but it's much simpler to do that. Yeah, well, I guess then some of that's um, on my side of the eyeballs. We just didn't, we were newish to interviewing. We, you know, it was like there was, it felt we were very, I don't know, insecure is not the right word. We just knew we didn't kind of know what we were doing. Like yeah. you get, you get into a groove <clears throat> and you, once you get kind of up on your feet, um then it starts to take a life of its own yeah. you got to put it out in the world i think to find out is there an audience for this is there a reaction to this you know this half a million people have listened to that show it's yeah. like that's that's mind-boggling to me because yeah it's about as niche as you can get i mean <laughs> yeah, the only seriously. thing more niche is if you had a podcast that was about uh like a deep dive into euphonia now that would yeah. be niche uh, nobody, <laughs> you mean what we're doing right now <laughs> Oh, that's true. So, um, but I mean, you know, it's like what that I, I teach a couple, I teach a couple of music entrepreneurship classes. We're in a marketing class right now. It's a business and music class in the fall and a marketing class every spring. And my point to the students is that uh, and I'll point to the dopey podcast. Like this is for famous brass players and this people who listen to it are, are either aspirational or they're other pros or they're, you know, whatever. And, and uh, but half a million people listen to that thing. And it's like, mm -hmm. that means that whatever you want to go do, you just got to find the audience for it. Yeah. You know, it's the Kevin Kelly thousand true fans. You know, there's some whole yeah. bunch of humans on the planet 
And every year over year, more humans are coming on to, uh, into a world where they can have a device of some sort or another that beams stuff to them. Yeah. And that number goes up every year and the speed and quality of that goes up every year, which means the audience size or potential audience size goes up year after year. So if yeah. you're putting things out on a regular basis in a way for, to make it easy for people to find it, <clears throat> then you'll find out if there's a big enough audience to support whatever it is that you want to do. Yeah. It's so funny. I was, um, when I was first talking about doing a podcast, I said I wanted to do long form interviews. My first interview was like two and a half, three hours, I think. Yeah, long. Um, yeah, long. It was so fun. I it, I interviewed um, this percussionist that I had written a piece for, and he had recorded this music video, and we knew each other from undergrad, so we got to dive deep into like talking mm -hmm. about what's weird about music school and all that kind of stuff. But I remember somebody saying to me, like, you know, people have time for that, and my response was, well, I mean. I used to fix tubas full time and I would listen to every episode of Lex Friedman. And some of those are four or five hours long. Like yeah. people Tim make the Ferris, time. Rich roll. You know, yeah. like if you're into it, then you're into yeah. it. When, you just have to find the people who are into it. I think there's something to be said about a long form podcast, kind of like uh, the recital structure that we were talking about earlier. You really get to know somebody when you listen to them talk that much. Yeah. written an understanding about what they're about and how they think. And I think that's really powerful. I do too. I do too. For the people that it's for. Yeah. But to everybody else, it's like, what do you do? Three hours you did that? You know, like, yeah. but if you're in, like, if somebody was going to sit and talk to Elvis Costello about songwriting for three hours, mm -hmm. sign me up. I'll, I'll yeah. stay up all night listening to that. Yeah, you know, I think if it's for you, then the length of it doesn't really matter. Yeah, I think I'd listen to just about anything Bill Burr put out. Like he could, he could put out like a, an eight hour video of him, like making pumpkin bread or something. And I'd watch it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because <laughs> well, he'd be hilarious while he was making pumpkin bread. Oh my bread. gosh. You know, yeah. It would just be, cause you forget, you want, it's the sense of you're kind of hanging out with them. Yeah. 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 Well, and everybody has that super specific short list of stuff that they're all in about. Yeah. And so you've got to find that you mm -hmm. as a creator have to, and the way you find them is that you put out stuff on a regular enough basis that it can start to catch. And then like, I know I send stuff to former students, friends, family members all the time where I'll fall into a thing. And I'm like, Oh, this, this is perfect for my daughter. And I'll throw her a, Hey, you, this is a thing you're going to dig. Uh, because you, you just have, it, it can be, if you can find the person or someone who's connected to the person, because we all want to tell our closest friends and colleagues and family members, here's something I think you're going to like. And so we, but you also have, have to put things out on a regular enough basis that it's yeah. not one comes out and then there's six months and then two go out and then there's, you know, you go to the website and check out our calendar and it was last yeah. updated in 2017. It's like, okay, that's not good. I guess the question then is like, does the exception prove the rule? Because Dan Carlin's cleaned up with the, I put it two episodes out a year model, or is it because like the consistency is he puts out two episodes a year. And so people get this crazy weight of like, I can't wait for the new hardcore history to come out. And then he drops a five hour episode. I think yes to both. I mean, that's what he defines regular as. And then yeah. if it's at a certain, like Mark Cohn is one of my favorite singer songwriters and his output is not, is not, he's not prolific, mm -hmm. but there's so he had, he was fortunate enough to have a couple hits, you know, walking in Memphis being the yeah. biggest one. But then it was like, when I listened to the rest of that record and then I listened to the everything else I could find, then I'm like, okay, I'm ready. 
Um, uh, I'd say yes to both, you know, I don't know, but it also is just good for you to be putting stuff out on a regular basis. Um, I'm tinkering with some, some things right now. Um, that I, you know, it's like, I'm at a different point where I kind of don't, I'm not in a building phase. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I I always tell students there's like, um, there's a curate, a cultivation phase and a curation phase. And Mm -hmm. this, this wave goes back and forth where in your career, you're like, at some point you're like trying to grab anything that you can, that will, that will throw up enough uh, attention or money or whatever to, to let you live indoors and eat food. And then at some point you get overwhelmed and you're kind of not giving everything the attention that it should. So then you curate it. You go, okay, well, I can let this part go and let that part go and dig deeper into here. And then maybe that project ends and then you're back to this area where you have to cultivate yeah. uh, more. But um, I'm kind of, uh, I don't know, I'm in a different phase right now. Um, I don't even know how to quite describe it, but it's, yeah. it's. I mean, I've read about it. I mean, it's it's not an unexpected phase, but it's, this what do I want to do with the rest of my life part where I've reached yeah. whatever level of success I have I have if you want to call it success or whatever word you want yeah. to put on it um and I don't I, I'm super what what do I want to leave behind is yeah. a is a question the legacy question I guess and so oh totally you know when folks get to about my mid-50s you know somewhere in that 50 to 60 range people will can often start to thinking along those lines of course um but uh it's interesting it's a lot more fun and i'm not in really a hurry anymore which is good i try to be in less of a hurry every year because i realize what's about i guess the question for me is like uh, what what do you think is next or what are you thinking about for next because like i don't want to i don't want to like make you think like you have to make a decision right here but no, I mean it's a fairly short list. I, the I have um, I have a couple of albums that I want to record. Uh, there was one I talked about on the show, which is uh, called uh, Grooves, uh, Relentless and Otherwise. And uh, there's a collection of repertoire that has the word groove in it or grooves in it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, relentless that, grooves being, yeah the is, iconic is the Samplavian yeah. relentless grooves I love those pieces so much those are great yeah 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 and so some of it's an homage um, I mean I, I'll, I'll forever be grateful that he wrote the, the Armenian one for me yeah and just the that's one of my favorite recordings and, it's, uh, such, it's such a diff- well I mean going back to like talking about the euphonium in a different sound Armenian uh, relentless grooves Armenia is like whew, that's it man that was heavy. That was heavy to do because uh, yeah. it's a super. It was a super personal and emotional yeah. tune to him. Um, uh, but that's a million years ago. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that was. People thought I was nuts with, when I recorded that record. Like, well, yeah, okay, because it, it had no normal repertoire. Well, now Relentless has become more or less. Yeah, and Piazzolla has become yeah. kind of accepted repertoire. But at the time, nobody was. I mean, hardly anybody was playing Piazzolla. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but yeah, I remember <laughs> Sam was like, you, you want it to be hiya, hiya, how are you? Hiya, hiya, how are you? Or, hiya, how are you? Hiya, how are you? Hiya, how are you? And I was like, I don't care. Man. All right, we'll do hiya, hiya, how are you? Like, okay, cool. But yeah, it was, uh, it was just, 
touched, uh, you know, grateful. So, um, but there's a bunch of repertoire that fits into that um, theme, for lack of a better way to describe it. And then I want to collaborate with buddies. So I want each yeah. each piece and each movement to be a partnership with me and probably a tuba player and probably a percussionist. Oh, sweet. But then also I've got like, I don't know, I don't know, three, three, four dozen comedy songs that I've never like recorded the right way. I mean, just like yeah. high quality recording. I don't know if the right way is the right way to say it, but um, I'd like to just have a document of those. But then the other thing, the so that's kind of like clear. I mean, some of it is there's just stuff that I just want to kind of get out and, and put into the world uh, for my kids, if nothing else. You know, just like here's here's yeah. the stuff that I did. But then <clears throat> that's kind of like closing out stuff from a, a, not a previous life, but stuff that's been banging around in my head that I just never had the yeah. time to put forward. But the other thing that's kind of interesting to me, I've always been interested in in um, film and <clears throat> so i want to um basically just make little short films and That's uh, awesome. uh but but create the sound the soundtrack for them as well and oh, so awesome. then it'll allow me to play euphonium ukulele percussion instruments sing do whatever um and just make the whole like kind of just like make this little jewel box put it out in the world and then go make another one if people watch yeah. it dig I'm awesome if not behind i'm gonna go make another one too like just there's a lot of there's just a lot of interesting we have this you know there's a couple of paths to go down i mean i have a ton of footage already of stuff that i've just accumulated we went actually it was january of 2020 we went to malawi my wife and i and uh, the thing through our church it was there were four of us it was the music pastor the associate pastor and then my wife and me and my wife and the associate pastor taught these women in uh, Malawi to sew and to make aprons and to make That's all incredible. kinds of stuff that they could go sell and make some money for themselves. Yeah. And then the music pastor and I taught uh, the folks at this church to read Western style notation because they're incredibly oh, musical and they, yeah. they sing all the time. Um, and we were just trying to provide the Rosetta Stone for them to kind of broaden where it went. But anyway, I had my, I had, I was taking uh, shooting video constantly. So I've got, I don't know, I mean, hours and hours and hours of stuff. And so that's that, I, there's some interesting stuff in there. And then on the complete opposite of the spectrum, we have a, a miniature dachshund. And I don't know if you've been around miniature dachshunds, they have big personalities you know like yeah, I do. big personality <laughs> so she's hilarious so i don't know if i'll ever pull this one off but one idea i have is to make her the star of make a bunch of movie trailers in a variety of styles where she's the she's the lead you should definitely thing. do that i think it'd be pretty funny you so, break the yeah. internet <laughs> that would be incredible <laughs> <laughs> she's she's pretty hilarious she that's is, awesome yeah, she's pretty funny. So, and that's just kind of the tip of the iceberg. I mean, I, yeah. I don't know, just, it's been a thing I've, I mean, since high school, I wanted, I've been interested and fascinated by movies. I've tried to write screenplays over the years. I've just like, mm -hmm. in another life, I would have gone to Hollywood and tried to break in. Yeah. And maybe just, I, I would have maybe never made it beyond being the guy who went to get coffee. Mm -hmm. But that was like, it was always a dream and a goal and an interest yeah. of mine. And I'm like, well, 
I have every, <clears throat> all the equipment that I need is right there. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, I can go buy fancy equipment, but we're back to the thing where I just need to put the first 10 out and let them be yeah. terrible. And then I'll learn how to edit and I'll learn how to shoot and I'll learn how to do all that stuff. I mean, that's a, that's kind of what Tarantino did, right? He like just yeah. studied. I mean, he just watched a zillion movies and then decided yeah. like, this is what's good. And he's only yeah. made like what eight or nine, and they're all incredible. Nine, I think he's got one more. I think, yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah. kind of nice. And then what's he going to do? It'll be interesting. Like, what's his creative output going to be then? I've heard um, a limited series is in the mix because it's not oh, a film. Good. Yeah, I'm excited yeah. to see what it is. I could see that. I could see that. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, he worked in a video store and he just absorbed yeah. all of it. So, but we, we need. We need people to do that with the euphoria. Yeah. We need people to, yeah, to absorb and react, mm -hmm. and use this as a tool, not as a means to establish. Yes, we're just as good as the other instruments, and yes, people yeah. should write for it. I mean, okay, fine, fine, but some of us, like, yeah. all right, not everybody go in that direction. Some of you go yeah. in that direction, or that yeah. direction, or that direction, it, or that direction. That kind of gets to that old saying comparison is the thief of joy if we're spending all mm -hmm. of our time trying to tell everybody we're just as good as all those other people rather than just saying like this is what's cool mm -hmm. it's never going to happen yeah yeah i mean i can't tell you the number of times i've had a, a situation with a student who comes in and they i i see it coming but then they finally one day will come in and go i don't i don't really want to play the funny repertoire anymore and I'm like, I know. <laughs> and that's fine. And it, yeah. it got you here. And so it's not, yeah. it's not, um, I don't mean to poo poo it all. Um, but I, it's a means to an end. It's not the yeah. end in and of itself. And I think for too yeah. many of our, my colleagues, it's the end in and of itself. And, and definitely. And there's, I mean, there's jewels of the euphonium repertoire that are dramatically underplayed and some of it's because of how challenging they are i mean i remember yeah. when i was working on the linkalock concerto i thought the second movement was the most beautiful thing ever written for the instrument but like 99.999 yeah. percent of euphonium players will never be able to play just the second yeah. movement let alone the two that go next to it <laughs> yeah 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 yeah. well i remember when yuka millis came over to falcone and played that you know it was brand yeah. new it was still like written like handwritten manuscript yeah. and it just sort of put me on my heels and um yeah there's definitely pieces like that in the repertoire or totally. and or movements of bigger pieces in the repertoire mm -hmm. and even up to like you know pantomime is much much maligned you know it's a cliche now for our, our yeah i've made a it's a nice tune. People like oh, yeah. it. It goes together pretty well. I've made a bunch of money playing it. A bunch of money. You know, like people either want, you know, Bluebells of Scotland or or yeah. Panama. You know, yeah. like that kind of tune. I played a I played a masterclass for um Misa Mead earlier in December. And uh it's up at Elmhurst College in Chicagoland. And mm. uh <laughs> the Tuba Euphonium professor up there. Uh, was telling me that they um, Steve got COVID, so he wasn't able to play uh, the concert or go to the masterclass. So Misa got to run everything. And, and uh, when when she came into the band rehearsal, they're like, "Okay, here's your stand. We've got everything set up for you. Are are is, are you going to be comfortable?" And she just took the stand off stage. Like, I don't need this. I'm playing pantomime. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, man, I'd love to have that kind of authority on a stage. That'd be incredible. <laughs> It's like everything else. Yeah. Go do it a bunch. Yeah, of one day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
but just get out there. I mean, it doesn't matter yeah. who it is at some point, you know, just get in front oh, of people. Totally. Like it's hard to, you know, when I was in the quintet, I don't know. I figured out at one point, I counted it up for some dopey reason, but I think I've done a couple thousand performances. Whoa. It's like at that point, you just like, it stops being so mysterious, you know? Yeah. And the judgment of others becomes less, um, uh, not, it doesn't sting so bad. Like you, I, yeah. I know if a thing went well or didn't go well. And mm-hmm. I don't, I mean, you know, if you want to boo, boo, I don't care. doesn't, yeah. you know, like, but yeah, but you figure you come up in conservatory style training or, and even through your music education program in high school and all you're told is, no, that's wrong. This is, you got to fix that. No, that's not good enough yet. That's not yeah. good. enough. So you come up in that mentality and then you might perform, four times a year you know two concerts in the fall and two in the spring if you're lucky yeah. or a marching band show and then at college like you do two solo performances you know yeah. or if you happen to win a chamber music competition or a solo competition but i did it at michigan and i didn't understand this was weird but i did a recital a half recital uh every year i was at michigan state for five years so i did a half recital for i think three years and then two full recitals every year i was just going to do a recital yeah and so you get through a lot of repertoire and I had a super encouraging teacher and great friends that would play along with me. And it was just, I just, I played in every group that would have me and um, you just, that's how you do it. You know, it's yeah. like, imagine you're like a basketball player and you like put all this time and effort in, you study all the grades, you practice, you practice, practice, but you only play four games a year. Like, yeah. Huh? Yeah. What are you talking about? Like that's just that, that makes yeah. no sense. You'd probably have really great technique in isolation, but you'd never play well under pressure. Yeah, and it's not a perfect analogy. I understand. Yeah, you know, there's you're learning the repertoire, and so then it takes time to develop that repertoire. But at the yeah. same time, like but connecting to the to energy of, of other ideas, people and being able to feel the groove of the ensemble, what it's like to be in the space, and to to feel how the audience is reacting. I mean, it's, I guess it's a little bit different at a, like a classical music concert, unless you're playing with like a um, like a chamber group in yeah. like a bar or something. But like uh, this is why I enjoy studying stand up so much. That's the art form. It it has to be like sort of a hypnotic give and take rather than. Just like I play the thing, they clap. Well, the audience is part. I mean, you can't, you you can practice memorizing jokes, but until you get in front of an audience, you don't know what jokes are funny. You think you know, but I mean, that was where I had great, one of my great gifts as a, as a performer was playing the, 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 my first stint with the River City Brass Band um, was the, uh, by then I had done, well, I'd done improv comedy in D.C., and then I had done um, a lot of mic time with Brass Band of Battle Creek as well. Yeah. Not 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 just those two things, but I'd been in chamber groups and I was usually the microphone guy. And um, but then with River City Brass Band, you know, it became I ended up kind of owning the first three to five minutes of the second half. I would just come out and do a bit, or you know, it'd be like a little short set. That's awesome. To set up the and the the conductor who's one of my best friends now, he was, he then became my boss at, at Carnegie Mellon. Um, he would say, make this one musical, or could it be about this topic? Or he just completely left. It was hands off, but he would say, okay, not music, like just yeah. like jokes or, a, you know, and so, and at the time the, the band would do seven concerts a year in nine different venues. 
And so you get, you know, I get to go try it out in the first, I lived a couple of hours away, two and a half hour drive in. So then I would work the material and memorize the material. And and then, then you have to put in front of an audience because just because you think it's funny, like you don't, you get one vote. There's way more of them than you. And so then I would think, okay, these five jokes and then that closer is right there. And then on the third joke, it gets this huge laugh. And then I'm like, okay, there's the closer. And then the next night. And so you can ignore that. I mean, I have, I have another friend. I won't say who it is who on the microphone, um, they're sure they're right. And they're sure that this is the funniest joke. And I'm like, listen to the audience. They're not, they're not digging that. They dig this one, move that one there or just stop. Just like stop at that third joke. No, no, no. It's not. I just, I think I delivered it wrong. I don't think so, but try, you know, and it's like, ah, if you're not, but that's what is required. And that's what we don't get enough of is to, to just that, that, that in jazz more so, you know, yeah and you have to you have to be a serious artist to have the foresight to see like i need to leave this exactly the way it is i mean think about somebody like norm mcdonald who's like the king of like i'm gonna do this joke even if nobody laughs because i know it's good but he earned that i mean norm's one of the greatest of all time right right well and i never earned it but sometimes i'll do i would do that too yeah and then i would just i would use the fact that people didn't laugh to say, I know you don't think that's funny, but I like that joke, so I'm leaving it in. And then that gets yeah. another laugh. You know, I yeah. build a tag on you, it. And I just, yeah, like, you can doing it. cut the tension differently. And so totally. the joke the joke is the fact that nobody laughed at it. <laughs> yeah, and getting, awesome. getting used to that, because there's like this palpable, like, you bam, like, you, you're driving, you're driving, and then here's the payoff, and then crickets, that like hits you yeah. like a, Ooh. and if that throws you off, you're sunk. But usually I'm just like, really? You didn't like that? Like, what? Like, all right, fine. So that's not your bag. Cool. We'll go in another direction. And just, it's that, that if you don't have that level of confidence, because yeah. the audience senses fear. Like if they know that you're spooked, then it, the whole vibe changes and they start to feel a little bad for you and they get uncomfortable and they're shifting in their seats. Mm-hmm. But if you come back from a no laugh with something like that, then they're like, okay, I'll, I'll yeah. see what else you got going on. Like, I'll hang in there. That's all right. You know, you just took one on the chin, but yeah. you still kicking when there's like it's so funny i remember the first time uh listening to the junkies when y'all mentioned that like the brand is like beating a joke into the ground i think there's actually like a pretty serious art to that because it can become derivative really fast i mean that's Mm. the difference between like uh like jens lindemann's chop problems and bazinga because yeah (laughs) <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, yeah. oh, he said bazinga, so we're supposed to laugh. Versus like all of us knowing that, like, <laughs> right. there's there's no well, maybe Jens has chop problems, but given the amount of playing I've heard him do in the last couple of years, probably doesn't. <laughs> his his chop problems are the least concerning of his problems. <laughs> he called what was like i i never hear from him you know like every once in a blue moon i'll hear from him and it's yeah. usually just like it's always weird but he did this piece there was some greek god or you know it's some it's like zeus or some piece that was written for him that's got this god concept thing and there's a voiceover <laughs> thing at the beginning of it and when it first came out he was in town doing something here in pittsburgh 
and he's like, hey man, would you would you read this thing? And they're gonna play it over the loudspeakers before the thing, and you know, and then the blah blah blah. I did the inner world, so I did that. <laughs> and then like, probably ten years ago, I don't even know. So then, like six months ago, he's like, hey man, I need that thing. I lost it. Can you send it to me? I'm like, no, <laughs> I don't know where that is. So I like had to record it again, and I was like. It just did it with my phone. I'm like, I, you're going to have to kick this up. Like, he goes, I need it yeah. like today. I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to use <laughs> Hollywood my phone. Style. You put it, yeah. And so I just, like, <laughs> in a world. You know. But yeah, he's awesome. a goofball. Yeah. Yeah, he is. Pretty funny. I met Jens for the first time uh, at the Midwest Clinic this year. It was kind of fun. Mm. Yeah, we yeah, kind of yeah. we saw each other, and we're both wearing, like, the wildest suits in the place. And it was kind of like that Spider-Man meme where we're like. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's him. It was really silly. That's it's very silly. Yeah, he's not, <laughs> cool. He's not right, but we all. Are. <laughs> awesome. Cool. I have a couple of quick things before we uh, tie it up. Um, cool, man. So um, we talked a lot today, but now I kind of want to get specific. What are a couple of your favorite euphonium excerpts? Excerpts? You mean like band excerpts? Band orchestra, like use in a, a piece. Is kind of what I'm thinking. Um, the idea, the idea is, I want to have like a codified resource for people to come back to and say, like, okay, we and sure. and I don't need like a whole laundry list. Just like two or three of your favorites. My plan is to do excerpts, solos, and concerti as like three different areas. So like, yeah. if one or two that you really like and why, and then I want to do least favorites too. <laughs> well, I uh, um, one of my favorites is when Jesus wept. When yeah. Schumann, I just think that thing is, that's just, I think, one of the greatest things that we get to play. I did a brass quintet arrangement of that with euphonium as the trombone voice. Actually, a trombone player did it at the premiere of it. Snare drum and brass quintet. Wow. Um, that, that, that just tears me up. I just love that thing. A piece that I appreciate, but I don't really like. I appreciate it for, it's actually not a terrible tune. Uh, is the Schoenberg theme of variations. I appreciate yeah. that he put such a major solo for the instrument, major composer, major solo in a work. Um, I mean, it's hard to go wrong with Granger. Mm -hmm. uh, you choose, you know, there's like a ton of those. Um, you know, the ones that I've, whether they're good or bad, the ones that I thought were super fun to play was like uh, Roman Carnival and, um, um, you know, I was in the Air Force Band, so the Claude Smith uh, Festival Variations. I yeah. just thought that those were really, really fun to play. I don't know if they were any fun to listen to, but they were super fun to play. Um, like Fingal's Cave, you know, those just like noty. Yeah. Uh, we got to play 10 athletic. billion notes per square inch. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and then not every tune works like that like uh yeah. i, I freaking hate melody shop i just i've yeah. always hated that tune i don't dig the i don't know i just don't i don't dig that tune and um yeah. i get that it's hard but that, that, you know it's like my teacher tucker uh from akron had a picture that was ripped out of a magazine stuck to his door and it was a picture of a hand grenade it was i don't know what the ad was for but it said just because it's loud doesn't mean anybody wants to listen to it i was like yeah. well that's kind of how i felt about melody melody slop like yeah just, okay i mean cool i guess yeah and I mean, part of that was you know they would just this dog and pony show at the end of the army band conference where they parade yeah. us all on stage and they do it at like mock seven like uh, yeah. okay that's fine i was 
at the iTech in 2019, I was sitting with Mark Carlson for like the final mm. uh, Fountain City Brass Band concert. And oh. <laughs> we, were, we were in like the upper balcony. And as they parade all of the solo artists from the whole week out to play Melody Shop, he goes, Andrew, what do you notice about this? And I was like, I don't know. They're all playing super fast and it sounds perfectly clean. And he goes, look on the far right side of this stage. And Brian Bowman is... 10 feet from the nearest stand everybody else has like pages of music open oh yeah he's just flying through it <laughs> like it's yeah. no big deal <laughs> i could stand up and play that thing tonight awesome. so many times it's like it's yeah. just yeah it just gets beaten into your head yeah. i don't know those are the ones that come to mind i guess cool um what about solos and I, so for solos i mean non-concerti specifically Um, well, I like Dados's tunes mm. and of course I like Sam's tunes, you know, the, the relentless tunes and I like, um, so I don't do that much of that. So I'm trying yeah. to think of repertoire of that. Like if I, someone said, Hey, I need you to do a recital. What would you do? Mm. Um, yeah. You know, another one that's kind of fun to play is Allegro Spiritoso, which I've been playing since high school. Um, that was on the Falcone record. You know, that's mm -hmm. just like a nice little closer or opener. And it's just everybody kind of digs it and it falls nice on the instrument. Um, I don't think I've actually played that chart. Um, can you name the composer too? Yeah, S-E-N-A-I-L-L-E. It's a violin tune from oh, awesome. 1700s, I think, or something. Falcone transcribed it. Uh, just two minutes you know it's just a yeah. Whenever that was, so you have to do a little bit of goofing around with the, the double stops. There's ways to solve it. You can yeah. arpeggiate and you can leave some of it out, but it's just a really nice tune. Yeah. Um, this weird stuff, you know. I mean, Yeah. one of my favorite pieces, as well as the Adler, the the, the duo, the marimba thing. Uh, I thought that was really nice. Um, I like the Jan Bach tunes. I guess those are more of a concerto link. Yeah. tune um i Yeah. feel bad i'm probably blanking on a bunch of stuff you know i've got students that are that are digging into um my student who i mentioned that did that demarginalized record she's all about playing music by not white dudes and so we've done a deep dive into barbara york stuff i there's not a dog in there man all of her Yeah. stuff is so good I got to meet Barbara and a few betsy times. rom too her It was tunes really special. really cool Yeah. yeah That's awesome. so those are real nice you know barfield i guess that's more concerto thing Mm -hmm. yeah yeah. that's that's yeah Do you, do you have any least favorites? Or like, I guess, maybe not things you don't necessarily like, but like things that don't, that aren't like super ergonomic on the horn or are like that you found like didn't suit the instrument very well. You know, there's a bunch of repertoire when I came up. I won't name names, but it was all written in a in a in the same general period. Here's another tune I really like: is the Donald White Lyric Suite. 
Uh, that's a really good piece, I think. Um, I like Neil Horwell's short, four short narratives. That's that. that there's some stuff in there too. And um, but anyway, there, it was a ton of. Um, it was stuff that was written in the late '70s through the mid '80s, mid to late '80s, and it's all super chromatic and it's very intellectual. And some of it laid well, and some of it didn't. And it was just sort of, fortunately. <laughs> I don't think most people know these tunes anymore, but that was yeah. kind of all we had to play in the yeah. You know, it's like that was it until uh, you know the we had the British invasion came along and brought all these sort of tuneful things for us to play. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that stuff is. Um, yeah, I don't want to throw composers under the bus because I'm sure yeah. you know, and and I think they served a purpose and they filled oh, totally. a niche and a need at the time, but. but uh no one's singing along with these and i i don't i could I, I bet that most of the tunes like if i looked at my recital programs i predict there's a bunch of those tunes that no one's playing anymore because yeah. it was just like you know well i wonder sometimes like i, I don't know we I, there's definitely no way we've talked about this i have a pretty big career as a composer too that's like what i'm applying for my doctorates for um I think I've written almost 150 pieces now, but like one of the things I run into a lot is that, especially right now, when I'm commissioning young folks, they've only ever written on computer. Mm -hmm. And so like the idea of like, well, what's reasonable for stamina? What's like oh, singable yeah. and listenable? What music is really grounded in the reality? It's mm -hmm. really funky, like trying to address that. I had uh, the incredible privilege of having a number of lessons with David Maslanka during my bachelor's degree. Oh, that's cool. And one of the things he talked about all the time is like, you have to do some part of the process with just pen and paper. Mm. Like, I know it's cool to write on computer all the time, but like some part has to be like just pen and paper, or you're going to lose touch with the fact that you're pulling this from the universe with your hands. Yeah. Yeah. That's the same goes with journaling, I think. too. Oh, totally. You can do it here, but if you don't, if you have a pen and paper and that's it, then mm -hmm. stuff happens. So different stuff happens. Yeah. And when I think there's some gravity, like deep encoded in our human DNA too, that like we've committed to writing this down. So therefore it's important because mm -hmm. I mean, like the developing language and literacy is so important to like the development of the human brain. I, I was talking, my sister is a musicologist and she and I were talking mm -hmm. one time about how technically if we wanted students to remember something best, the, the thing you could make a case for is that they should carve it in stone because <laughs> you really got to well, commit, <laughs> but who's got true. the time for that? Who's got the time? Yeah, that's going to be a long degree for me. <laughs> yeah, imagine, imagine that thesis. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm 62 years old. I'm still in Pope Gregory. <laughs> awesome. Um, so let's move on to Concerti. What are the faves? Concerti. Uh, I've always been a fan of the, the Horowitz. I just think that thing is great. Um uh you know one that i wished got played more and probably i'm responsible for it not being played more because i don't play it more is uh brian Baumann just wrote uh, a piece for me that we it was for the one of the anniversaries of the falcone crossroads it's a two movement concerto but it's um it's really good there's some interesting stuff in it and beautiful sounds and yeah. cool like funk um cadenza towards the end of it oh awesome yeah um, i've never even heard of this yeah 
Yeah, it doesn't get played enough, and I, I, I should try and help make that not be the case. Dados, you know, his. I, I actually, you know, and I, I, I like melodic, tuneful stuff. So I like a lot of those European and British tunes, those brass yeah. bandy type things. I like those. Um, uh, well, the the Jambach tunes, like that I mentioned before, those I just feel like other oh, Linkola, um, yeah. Jenkins, Barfield. Barfield, heck yeah. Barfield is awesome. You know what I think? It's just so, be... like, it's so taxing. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, that's, there's no yeah. reason I mentioned that it's the um, UFO. Like, I, I, yeah. I'm, I wouldn't say friends, but friendly with Johan. Uh, mm. And it's like, that one, man, you just, <clears throat> you just like yeah, punching yourself. Nice. But there's some great, um, there's some cool stuff in it. I just think it's a nice tune. Do you think the Cosma is uh, overplayed? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, that's a great one, though. I like it. Yeah, a lot. I uh, is it is it played? I don't know. It's probably yeah, I, at universities see, all over. Yeah, I mean, because well, and it makes sense because the piece is so nuts. I mean, I didn't. Yeah. I I I knew how to play fast, but like I didn't love playing fast music until I played the third movement of the Cosma. Because mm. there's just something about like being everywhere in a second that I loved, and I never felt like a string player before. But mm -hmm. it is funny. I was chatting with a friend of mine who um, plays bass primarily, and she's like, "You know, this is kind of nuts, but this sounds this doesn't sound like euphonium music. This is string music." And I was like, "Yeah, it's mm -hmm. like Romanian violin music." Yeah, yeah. But yeah, that's yeah, what's yeah. cool about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I, th I mean, I'm sure I'm leaving them on the table, but. Again, I just don't listen to much of that stuff. And um, my students either get to the point where well, some grad students will come in uh, wanting to play a lot of that. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the undergrads, by the time they get to be, by the time they get to the point where they could play it, they've kind of moved in a different direction. Like, yeah. It's it's a nature-nurture question. Do the students, that I the, do they come to me because they know I'm going to lead them in weird ways or do mm -hmm. I lead them in weird ways and they just don't end up playing some of that repertoire but they'll do really interesting different things and combinations of things yeah. so I don't know chicken yeah. egg we'll find uh, I guess a question that you know one um, tune that's in the standard repertoire that I cannot stand is the Gordon Jacob Fantasia <laughs> freaking hate that tune I don't I don't get it at all I don't understand <laughs> I don't find it in, in any way <laughs> uh, I, it's just like if no one ever played it again it'd be all right with me and i know there's people like oh my god but i uh, just can't stand that too i had a friend give a presentation in a class this semester and uh on like the career of and life of gordon jacob and the oh. she opened the presentation with this guy wrote like 500 pieces and i think only one of them is any good <laughs> I see. I you know, it's like the what's the what's the big band thing? Oh, I'm not sure. Shoot, I'm blanking on it. There's this big band tune that he wrote that ah, that's pretty good. But uh, there's a trombone <laughs> quartet thing that's not awful. But God Almighty, that's not my bag. Not my bag. Oh, God Almighty. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, jumping back to the the comment you made just a second ago. Um, about how your your students tend to be doing kind of a lot of atypical things by the time they're finished. Is it a goal of yours as a teacher to get your students to a point where you don't have to assign them anything anymore? That's interesting. Is it a goal? I don't know. Uh, my goal is to teach them 
to, I hope that they know how to fish by the time they leave. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I don't, if I just have them, you click off all these boxes and then I'll send you out in the world. I don't think I'm yeah. doing them a service. So I try to meet them where they are. I ask way more questions in lessons it, and um, I'm less, uh, I'm not super prescriptive. Um, and that drives some students up a wall. I try and be as clear about it as I can. But sometimes if you come in and you're 18, 17, 19, like you don't, you don't understand what this old man is saying to you. Like you don't understand what that ramifications that are. And then at some point they're like, can you just tell me what to do? Yeah. And I'm like, I could. How fun is that? None at all. Like, why don't yeah. you tell me what you think you ought to be doing or where do you think if there's like, okay, we have some intonation. You know, there's like the nuts and bolts stuff that we need to deal with. But in terms of direction, repertoire, you know, I had students like I hate Arvins or not Arvins. Yeah, Arvins. I hate Arvins. I'm like, fine, find me a suitable substitute that you dig yeah. that does this. And then we'll do that. I don't like Roshu. Fine. Find me a suitable substitute and we'll do that. It's okay with me. It needs to be able to do this it needs to have these characteristics, but, and so then they have to, Oh, what does that mean? What is this? You know, it's like cause them to think I, I'm fortunate, well, I'm fortunate full stop, but at CMU, CMU, not, not just CMU, but, one of the, you know, there's other schools where this is the case. You you must not only be a fantastic musician, but you got to be smart enough to get into CMU. Yeah. So I'm very fortunate to attract really intelligent um, young players. Mm -hmm. And then I have just been a guy who's always questioned authority. So I'm sure some of that has rubbed off. Um, I've <laughs> we have a student advisory board at Carnegie Mellon, and um, historically there's. Uh, disproportionate representation of euphoniums on that and they're they That's are awesome an awesome force and they're known everywhere and people are like what is the euphonium like what we teach that here you know that's awesome. But they're, you know, they're making a, they're making a mark and that's, uh, you know, that's what that's I really hope special. they'll do. I, yeah, I feel very fortunate. I mean, it's really a, a cool that's thing. So cool. Uh, yeah, I'm spoiled. It's pretty good. Awesome. I think this is a good place to tie it up. Lance, thanks cool, so much. Cool, man. It's yeah, really great chatting with you. Very fun. Awesome, awesome. More uh, where can folks find you? I don't know, man. Everywhere. In <laughs> it's the <laughs> internet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, actually, I'm, I got a, that's another like project that uh, I've been putting off is I've got, I need to revamp my website because uh, I want to. You and me both. I want it to kind of be a collect, you know, it's like it has, I've done a bunch of stuff, you know, and, and I want it to serve kind of more as a record than as a promotional tool anymore. Mm -hmm. And so that that's a very different um, thought process and how you sort it is different. Um, so collecting written works and comedy things and euphonium stuff and chamber stuff and large ensemble stuff. And you yeah. know, so there's like just a bunch of video stuff. So, um, but you can go there. I mean, it's, it still works. All the links still work, but yeah. Just hit yeah. me up. Um, awesome. I don't go on social media that much anymore. I mean, either. so uh, you know, just send me an email. Uh, you yeah. know, you can find me lots of ways. But yeah, I'm Sorry. happy to answer questions or talk to folks. So awesome, awesome. Thanks so much, Lance. Thanks. To, yeah, thanks for your time. Yeah, absolutely. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Musical Trick Artista the podcast. You can find us online at mcgowanmusic.com or listen on your favorite podcast platform. You can also visit us at Andrew McGowan on YouTube or Music McGowan on Instagram.